lots and lots of spoilers. Welcome to Max Mike Movies, the show where every day is St. Swithin's Day. Ah, ah, the 90s. A time of analog cell phones, tiny handbags, and jolt cola. (laughs) You know, (laughs) all the the sugar and twice. It's safe as coffee. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Kurt Cobain's roamed the earth, and the swatch had begun to fade. And also, there were movies, lots of movies. This week finds us with another entry in our In Ancient Days, the 90s. My choice, 1992's Wayne's World. One of only two good movies to come out of Saturday Night Live, but we'll get to that later. Will as, we? 90s, as 90s movies go, this is a pretty 90s one. Yeah. I am your excellent host, Max Schwing Levine. With me, as always, is Mike Sphincterboy Loose. Movie on, Mike. Party on, Max. <laughs> Close enough. And now, let's recall a time when Saturday Night Live was actually funny. Uh, shh, I'm remembering. It was, and then it stopped, and then there was a brief shining time in the 90s, and uh, now, well, and now, now I'm sad. Now, well, yeah, now has been for a very long time. Yeah, true. Uh, wasn't... Was Mike Myers still part of the show at this point? Uh, I think he still was, yes. Okay. He was on his way out because he was going to become a huge movie star. Which, for a short time, he was. Yeah. Yeah. And then, after a short time, he wasn't. (laughs) Yes, and now he's more popular when he doesn't actually appear on the screen. Don't get He He was in something weird. The Love Guru? Oh, yeah. He was in... Was it Rocket Man? Oh, no, we'll yeah. get to that. We're going to get yeah. that. He was in Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody, that's yeah. right. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, but first, a little business. Oh. As always, you can find us at our website, maxmikemovies.com, with a complete catalog of uh, all our previous episodes, not to mention our vast array of non-existent merchandise. You promise not to mention that. I have to. It's mentionable. <laughs> uh, you you said, could also. <laughs> but you said! You said! You actually said! Bumpy, get him! <laughs> You keep you keep that that equine son of a away from me. But uh, you can find us, of course, at the podcast app of your choice: Google Podcast app, the iTunes Podcast app. You can find us on Spotify under Max Mike Movies. You can also find us on the has. social media raters on Max Mike Movies. We're on the Twitters and we're on the Facebookers. Right. Comments. Send comments. us comments. Yes, send us comments either on the site or feel free to email us at us. At MaxMikeMovies.com. Remember, if, we... if you send us a comment, you get twice the points. Exactly. And you'll get many fabulous no prizes. Look that yes. up, Marvel freaks. And stop texting us. <laughs> yes. Yes, text. We, we don't have... The, the show does not have its own phone number, okay? It's no. just not responsible enough to have its own cell phone yet. No. Someday, maybe. And you know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> right. Show trivia. Oh, is oh. there any? I oh, two, there, three tops. There's a pant load, Chet, but uh, I managed <laughs> to cut, cut down a bit. I uh, hope so. First off, the budget for this was twenty million bucks. Worldwide Ooh. gross, a hundred and eighty-three million. Oh, so it's a failure. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. This wow. was 
which of course brought about the inevitable sequel, which I'll talk get to later. Will you? Yeah, yeah. We have to? Now, okay. Mike Myers wanted the film to be about a local cable access show because apparently hosting a lo local cable access show was one of his lifelong dreams. Well, now, okay, I have to stop you right there because the whole premise of this film, mm -hmm. like a whole movie about a couple of guys who put on their own small amateur show, like that could ever I know, happen. that really is. It, uh, you really oh. have to suspend disbelief. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, we'd mean, love to do a movie. If yes. anyone would like to be out there, would like to do we, the Max Mike movie, movie, movie. Movie. Oh, we, yeah. we might have to uh, change the title. Totally, but. Yeah, uh, this is a great idea. I, Absolutely I applaud brilliant. Hollywood, yes. Uh, Wayne's World. I, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, yeah, now wait. Yeah. How much does it take to host a cable access show? Oh, that's right. Asking. <laughs> yeah, well, as, as in 1992, he explained he'd never done one in real life because he, quote, couldn't get around to filling out the forms and stuff. <laughs> that's really all you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the movie, by the way, both Dana Carvey and Tia Carrera do their own performing. That's actually Dana Carvey playing the drums in the music shop scene. He oh, was cool. a fairly competent drummer. Oh, hmm. And Tia Carrera started out as a singer. Oh, that is actually her singing? That is her singing. That Her version of Ballroom Blitz actually, made, I think it charted for a while. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. Neat. Yeah, thinking also of the music. This film is credited with reviving the popularity of Queen, the band, not yeah, the monarch. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Here in the U.S., anyway, using Bohemian Rhapsody. They kind of slid out of popularity in the 80s in the U.S., and they didn't really even bother coming here on their tour, uh, mm -hmm. their final two international tours. Uh, Wayne's World made the song a bigger hit in the U.S. charts than it had been the first time around when it was released. <laughs> it only made it to number nine then. Wow. Yeah. Sadly, uh, Freddie Mercury didn't live to see the song's renaissance as he had become rock's most famous AIDS casualty just a few months before the film's released. According to Brian May, though, Mercury did give permission for the song to be used, and he saw the clips when he was close to death because Mike Myers sent a tape for him, wanted him to see it. Huh. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. The studio wanted to use a Guns N' Roses track instead of Bohemian Rhapsody, but Mike Myers insisted on the Queen song going so far as to threaten to quit the production if he didn't get what he wanted, and eventually they caved. Well, it wouldn't have made any sense. Well, they, I don't know but, how they would have done it, but... Well, no, the film is so full of 70s nostalgia, it would have stood out like a sore thumb. Yeah, that is a problem. Uh, Dana Carvey didn't learn the lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody fire prior to filming the scene. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and he was very displeased with the take used in the film because he's obviously not singing, just kind of moving his mouth sort of in relation to the lyrics. Well, now, see, I thought that fit the character perfectly. Yeah, in a lot of ways it does. You don't think that Garth is someone who has those lyrics memorized. No. Uh... Yeah, also while filming that scene, both Mike Myers and Dana Carvey developed severe neck pain from all the head banging. <laughs> and if you watch closely, I checked this, uh, there are scenes later in the movie where it becomes apparent they're really trying not to move their necks at, at all. Wow. They're holding their heads very stiffly. I've suffered for my art. Now, now it's, it's your, your turn. turn. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, one of the one of the more famous scenes is the appearance of Alice Cooper. Yes, it was an interesting choice. Uh, he, by the way, didn't realize how involved he was going to be in the movie. He showed up on set under the impression he was going to do uh, just a, a song, and that's it. Maybe you have one line. Then he discovers they hand him an entire monologue about Milwaukee. <laughs> and with, like, almost no time to memorize it. However, Alice Cooper is apparently a huge history buff outside of his music career. He apparently knew some of this stuff about Milwaukee already. So it was not hard for him to memorize this. Okay. <laughs> of course, because when you think Alice Cooper, you think history buff. Well, the first time I saw him playing golf, it's like, what happened? Oh, that's a Cause weird he's wearing like, Yeah, because he's wearing the nice sweater and the nice <laughs> pants. And it's like, when did you turn into somebody's dad? But yeah. and, he, and he still will perform and he'll put on the makeup and the, the pants oh, yeah. and, the, and the stuff. But then he goes and plays golf. And it's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Rob Lowe, who uh. also is an interesting appearance in this movie, said he discovered his, quote, hitherto untapped gift for comedy. Okay. After meeting Mike Myers, who also cast him in the Austin Powers sequels. Yeah. Uh, this film... You know, this it basically was the revival of Rob, Rob Lowe's career after his um, little incident with a sex tape with him with oh, an underage yeah. yes with an underage girl. Oh, I didn't remember that part. Yeah, I thought it was she, Snow White. No, 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 that should have destroyed his career, but <laughs> no, no, him and I think it was a seventeen-year-old girl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, according to the director uh, Penelope Spheris, Mike Myers was. Um, challenging to work with. Oh? Yeah, he arrived on set one day to find that the snack table only had butter and not margarine for his bagel. Myers reportedly became enraged, flipped the table over, stormed off the set, and didn't come out of his trailer for hours. He wanted chiffon. Apparently. <laughs> uh, Spheris assigned her daughter to be his assistant. She told Entertainment Weekly... Uh, Myers was emotionally needy and got more difficult as the shoot went along. There's also some reason for that I'll get to. Oh, you, should have, wow. you should have heard him bitching when I was trying to do the Bohemian Rhapsody scene. I can't move my neck like that. Why do I have to do this so many times? No one's going to laugh at that. To this day, I have this image of my daughter sitting on this little cooler looking at me like, Mom, I effing hate you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, originally, also, Mike Myers did not want to share the limelight with Dana Carvey. Myers had oh. developed the character of Wayne as a solo character while he was working at Second City. Uh, they added Garth on Saturday Night Live. Uh, and at the time, Carvey was arguably the bigger star. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I, you know... Yeah, all right, we'll get to Garth. Remember yeah, to get back we'll get to, to Garth. We'll definitely get back to because yeah, that's that's yeah, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, thing is, though, uh, Mike Myers said filming was a blur because his father's health was dwindling at the same time. He says, mm -hmm. "I remember finishing the film, then I remember my dad dying." In an interview in 2013, mm. Mm. the "Stairway to Heaven" riff that's seen in the music shop says "No Stairway." You, if you notice in the video that the version I watched. That's not. He's not playing "Stairway to Heaven." I and, don't actually know the song, so <laughs> you don't know. You know, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yes, I do. Which you might have heard also as "Stairway to Gilligan's Island." Um, uh, that's see, I know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
It was changed in the international cable and videotape releases to this generic guitar riff because they had all these problems uh, obtaining the rights just for the first five notes of the song. The Hmm. only time it was played was in the U.S. theatrical release. Oh. Well, isn't that a shame? Yeah. Uh, The scene where Wayne and Garth are lying on the hood of the car, you know, talking about whether they were ever attracted to Bugs Bunny and drag... (laughs) That was apparently entirely ad-libbed. It was the last scene film, and everyone was just exhausted. Nobody wa- They shot this film in 34 days, by the way. That's a pretty short time. Usually That's it's eight, at least like six weeks, right? At least. Sometimes it's two to three months. Mm. Uh, as I say, Mike Myers and Penelope Spheris argued over the final cut of the film. Myers then blocked Spheris from directing the 1993 sequel, which we will find was kind of a mistake. The sequel or not letting her direct? Yes. <laughs> ah. Uh, <laughs> oh, just real quick on the Bugs Bunny thing. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much how furries came about. <laughs> I, I, I'm about making that it up. Makes, that's pretty really? much it right that there. Was, they, specifically, there are people have cited that it was Bugs Bunny in drag that uh, made them feel well, f- realize this about themselves. He didn't have to be in, in drag. Uh, oh, so, okay. But yeah, that, that kind of thing. Not that specific, but that's... If, if, if you ever wondered, that's sort of what led to furries. But anyway, moving on from okay. furries. Right. <laughs> uh, a lot of the dialogue was kind of a problem for translation into foreign languages. Really? Yeah, because it's <laughs> very American. And, for example, uh, Wayne's line, and monkeys might fly out of my butt, was translated into Spanish as, Cuando ligue el día del juicio, which means... When Judgment Day comes. Oh. Yeah. Not really any closer. No. And not funny. No. I, I, don't, I imagine, you know, Wayne's World in Spanish is not all that entertaining. Mm. Uh, Maybe it's a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> that could be. Uh, Gary Wright who originally recorded Dreamweaver, which we mm. hear whenever the first couple of times Wayne sees Cassandra. Mm-hmm. He re-recorded it just for this film. Oh, why? Yeah. Um, I don't know, because pe- made people listen to it again. Oh. Mm. Uh, this movie is also Chris Farley's big screen debut. He's got a cameo <laughs> as a security guard at the Alice Cooper concert. Now, uh, wait, he wasn't on the show yet? Oh, he was. But this oh, was okay. his first movie. This is the first time he showed up in a movie. Okay. Yeah. He also shows up in Wayne's World 2 playing an entirely different character. You can tell, by the way, when he shows up as a security guard, he, the hand gestures he's doing are, are right out of his character, Matt Foley, the guy who lives in a van down by the river. <laughs> of course, uh, uh, Chris Farley would have a lot of movies and yeah, sadly and a, a short career. But. Very, very short. Guy's taken from us too soon. Mm. Uh, Wayne at one point tells Cassandra that Crucial Taunt are, quote, double live gonzo, intense cities in ten cities, live at Budokan. I never knew what that meant. Do you? I'm guessing it's a wrestling thing. <laughs> now, that would make sense. No, the first two are Ted Nugent live albums, and oh, the third okay. is a Cheap Trick live album. Oh, I did not trick. know this. Yeah, Cheap Trick, oh. apparently, live at Budokan, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, although Wayne and Garth live in Aurora, Illinois, a western suburb about 35 miles west of Chicago, there isn't a single frame of this movie that's shot there. 
<gasps> You're Mike, kidding. I know. Horrifying. <laughs> Mike Myers said he'd never been there. He just liked the sound of the name. Has he? Was any of it shot outside of California? Uh, yes. What? A little of it was shot around Chicago. Okay. Um, after some research, he did find out that Aurora's demographics were pretty similar to his hometown of Scarborough, Ontario. Yeah, with less with, Canadians. <laughs> if you're far fewer Canadians. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Campbell lives with his parents, although we never see his parents or Garth's. This yeah. is not true of the TV of on of the sketches. We oh. meet both Gar- Wayne's mother, who is played by another cast member, and Garth's mother, who is played by Candace Bergen. Oh. Who immediately, of course, Garth has this huge crush on, which creep- <laughs> which creeps out. Sorry, Wayne has a huge crush on. He creeps oh. out Garth. You know, Your mom's a babe. Wayne, that's my mom. That's gross. Hey, remember that time when your mom was a senior and we were freshmen? <laughs> Shut up, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like uh, that. Uh, one of the uh, one of the other iconic scenes in that movie is Gar- is Wayne lusting after the, str- the Fender Stratocaster. Yeah, um, about that. I don't have... Well, actually, I have a Stratocaster Squire that, uh, although it's left-handed, looks exactly like that. Yeah, um, this is... It's basically a 1964... It is a 1964 Fender Stratocaster. I think it's called Olympic White. It's a pretty generic Stratocaster at the time. It would have cost probably about $300. (laughs) They made a special... Fender made a special run of the Wayne's World Stratocaster in the 90s. And they were modeled after it. They were discontinued because they weren't terribly popular, but they show up every so often. That 1964 uh, Stratocaster, though, uh, some collectors will pay upwards of $30,000 for it. So uh, that was a pretty good investment on Wayne's part. I think it's safe to say that the one in the movie is um, not the $30,000. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not. I mean, seriously, uh, I, I bought mine used. I bought it used with mm-hmm. an amplifier and a cord for like $150. Oh, dear. Now, but yeah. it's a Squire. The Squire yeah. is the, the learner's model. Mm-hmm. It's a little smaller. It's But it looks, it's the same colors and the same pickups and the whole thing. Does it have uh, a whammy bar? Uh, it does. Now, to be fair, mine does not have a, no, mine does not have a whammy bar. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I well, think because I don't go. actually play it. I yeah. just own it. <laughs> Warren is a very sad guitar. Oh, <laughs> I can't play. Don't call him Warren. Its name's not freaking Warren. <laughs> I thought its name was Warren. <laughs> uh, Cassandra's horrible jungle-themed music video at the end is, in some people theorize, is a little sort of nod to Pearl Jam, who sort of went through the same thing with their song Even Flow. They were so unhappy with the result of the video that they stopped its release and never made another music video. Ah. Yeah. Hmm. There is Mr. Big at the end, a.k.a. Frankie <laughs> Sharp, who yeah. I, I'm going to go out. I, could you tell through the subtle cues that this man was not actually an actor? What? He, he, I know. I'll, I'll let our audience get over their collective shock. <laughs> this is actually a really obscure kind of in-joke. Mr. Big is a reference to the villain played by Joe Pesci in the 1988 Michael Jackson Moonwalker video movie thing. Okay. Frank DeLeo, the guy who actually plays Sharp in Wayne's World, was Michael Jackson's manager from 1984 to 1989 and is one of the executive directors for the movie. 
Mr. Big's real name in Moonwalker is Frank DeLeo. Okay. Oh, excuse me, Ledeo. I got it backwards. So, um, yeah. That wow, does, I'm glad they could get him on such yeah. short notice. Yeah, that was really clearly one of those, <laughs> this is just for us things, because I had no idea who this guy was. I'm betting most people didn't. I mean, I wish it had been Orson Welles with the standard rich and famous contract. That, <laughs> that would have been, been better. That would have been good. <laughs> that would have been a lot funnier. Of course, they did that in a different movie. What was that? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. It was Transformers, the movie. <laughs> anyway, look it up, that's people. Right. I'm not kidding. He's not. Um, he played Unicron. <laughs> you know, I just sprayed for Unicrons <laughs> last week. Uh, the sequel to Wayne's World, Wayne's World 2, which came out the next year, did not do quite as well. The budget for that was twi- almost twice what this was. It was $40 million. The worldwide gross was $48 million. So <laughs> ah, it made back its money. I mean, I remember seeing it. I don't remember what happened. I just remember Christopher Walken is in it and being absolutely baffled by that. I think we're on the same boat as Mr. Walken. Yeah, I think so. And uh, just personally, this is there have been 10 Saturday Night Live movies. Oh, dear. Yeah, ten movies drawn from characters or sketches on that show. Most and how people, many I have think, you seen personally? I have actually seen at least half of them. Okay. There are only two that are successful, and there are only two that are any good. Wayne's World is one. The other, of course, is Blues Brothers, which had oh, a budget. Don't you mean Blues Brothers 2000? I most <laughs> emphatically do not. Yeah, doesn't, Blues doesn't Brothers. Have Macaulay Culkin or somebody in it. I who knows? No, it's some <laughs> obscure kid actor, and somehow I don't know if they held a gun to his head. They got John Goodman. It. We're not talking about it. I refuse. Okay. The other eight are Wayne's World two, Coneheads, which oh, yeah. I did see, which was inoffensive. <laughs> was it in focus? <laughs> I, it was in focus. Uh, it's Pat. Which, uh-huh. honestly, I remember seeing the poster for, but never saw a theater that was showing it. Oh. Yeah. Stuart Saves His Family, based on the Al Frank and Stuart Smalley self-help character, which I did see, which was in focus. Ah. Uh, High Blue- praise indeed. Blues Brothers 2000, which we will speak not of, <laughs> uh, I all, which I also saw. A Night at the Roxbury. Who was that? Oh. Uh, that was those um, two club guys who bob their heads in time to What is Love okay. and have no dialogue. Yes, this, they made a movie based on two characters who have no dialogue. Oh, I'm sure that played well in Schenectady. Oh, yeah. Um, wow, yeah. okay. Yeah. Superstar. Huh? Yeah, that was star- the Mary Catherine Gallagher story starring the criminally underused Molly Shannon. No, wait, Gallagher, so there's a lot of smashing of watermelons or something? No, or? no, wrong Gallagher. <laughs> although, oh, okay. Although she did tend to throw herself into furniture a lot for some reason. Well, now that is funny. The ladies' man, Tim, Me- a character of Tim Meadows, which was, you know, who cares? Uh, <laughs> and McGruber, the Will Forte character who was a, che- a basic ripoff of MacGyver. Wow. Yeah. That's um that's a whole passel of uh, that, bite me. Yeah, it really is. So uh, Well, we uh we better get to the plot or we won't be able I, to I crash. I mean talk yeah, about this film. Yeah, we won't we won't have any picture, right? Yeah. Yeah, the plot. 
Spun out from a successful series of sketches on Saturday Night Live in the 90s, the movie follows the adventures of Wayne Campbell, Mike Myers, and Garth Algar, Dana Carvey, two slacker proto-nerds from a small suburb of Chicago. Wayne and Garth host a weekly local cable TV show called Wayne's World, which basically consists of them acting like slightly post-high school kids, mocking authority, and generally being very silly. While not commercially successful, the show is locally popular, which attracts the attention of evil TV producer, because TV producers are always evil, Benjamin, played by Rob Lowe. Boo. Who, want, boo, who wants to expand the show and commercialize it and turn it basically into an extended commercial for a video arcade. Yes. <laughs> Along the way, Wayne meets a beautiful musician, Cassandra, who is so out of his league as to be <laughs> shatteringly absurd... Yet, who still falls for him? Yeah. Wacky hijinks ensue, catchphrases are spewed all over the place, the fourth wall is broken so many times, I'm surprised people weren't tripping over the rubble, conflict over the show arrives, but everything works out in the end, because basically Wayne and Garth decide it should. Well, they they have the three endings. <laughs> <laughs> they do. That was another little nod to the 90s, like, clue, that the uh, movies with multiple endings. Uh, so that's it for the plot? That is it. And now, the flim. So, first, let's get this out of the way. Uh, yeah. Uh, cameos. Brian Doyle Murray, which, to be fair, oh, yeah. hey, hey, you got five bucks? There yeah. you go. <laughs> you, can't get, you can't get Bill, get his brother. And technically, he was on Saturday Night Live. He after was. After Bill left, they're like, are there any more Murrays? At oh, there's one. We'll use yeah. that. Yeah, sorry, we need another Belushi. Let's get Jim. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah. And, of course, Jim Belushi is easily as interesting and good as... <laughs> oh, yeah, dear. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we get Chris Farley, who's been briefly, but there's enough energy that you're like, hey, that guy's going to do something. And, yeah. And, you know, he did. Uh, he, he didn't always have the best writers for his movies, I'm afraid. No. Um, but whatever. He's uh, one Robert, of those... He's one of those guys like Will Ferrell who, whatever you give him, he commits to it 170%. Yeah. Uh, Robert Patrick, who is known for one role, and that's playing the uh, morphing metal T-1000 in T-2. He's liquid Uh, metal. And a cute little bit that, honestly, if you don't remember T-2 very well or haven't seen it in a while, will not work. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. He shows the wrong picture. I don't know who that yeah. kid is. <laughs> that was yeah. That was not uh, Eddie Furlong. And Stan Makita, <laughs> who was yes. uh, the, the dad on uh, Married with yeah, Children. Yeah, that was Ed, Ed O'Neill. Was Al Bundy. Oh, his yeah. name's Stan Makita. It says no, so. no, it isn't. Stan Makita's <laughs> Donut Shop. That's a, a reference to a legendary Chicago Blackhawks hockey player. Interestingly, because in the credits it said Stan Makita played himself, so he uh, must have been in there somewhere. Maybe, yeah. Uh, or, or meat, just his. Meatloaf. Yes, Meatloaf. I <laughs> don't know why he's there. Um, and this is before he, I think, before he will play Bob in Fight Club. I okay. think that's right. I thought that was later in the 90s. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, but also, my favorite uh, credit in the opening of the film, special appearance by Alice Cooper. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah. And that so. scene is pretty funny, and it's a playoff on a scene from the sketch, when uh, one of the sketches where Gwen and Garth have Aerosmith on, and they actually have Aerosmith, and in addition to asking them about their music, at one point they ask a question about the, the socioeconomic ramifications of the fall of the Soviet Union, and... Uh, I think it's Steve Perry. Steven Tyler? Or, uh, sorry, no, not Tyler. Who's uh, Joe Perry? Joe Perry. 
responds with this very erudite explanation of post-Marxist theory, which is ac- it's actually a really funny moment. And, you know, one of the others disagrees with him and says it's really just a return to economic social Darwinism. And it, it's, a great, it's a great sketch. And they, they get pretty close with this. It is fun to hear, you know, Alice Cooper pretend to be interested in the linguistic origins of the city named Milwaukee or Milwaukee. Yeah, that was okay. So since you brought up Milwaukee, why is that in this movie? Mil, why is Milwaukee? Yeah, I have no idea. It's not like oh well, Chicago's not really that big a music town. It's not like Alice Cooper might have shown up there. I know. It's just like well, suddenly uh, Cassandra's from Milwaukee. The only reason I can see it's in there is so they can do the Laverne and Shirley thing, which again, if Very you don't remember dated. the seventies, you're not gonna get it. <laughs> That is something we do. We should talk about in this movie. There, how well the humor holds up, and there well, is a lot of stuff that is dated in this movie. There really is the Grey Poupon joke. Yeah, I mean, who's, who's going to get that? I, well, Besides, a rich guy in a, in a Rolls Royce. But, <laughs> uh, my note on that was: it's a movie that's based on the nostalgia that is itself nostalgic. Like, I honestly, it. There, we talked a little bit about this a while back when we talked about putting in. Uh, referential humor that itself is about popular culture and once that popular culture has faded or you get a new audience somewhere down the road they just miss it you know like when's the last time anybody talked about laverne and shirley as well they shouldn't um oh i used to watch that show religiously i know people who did but it really isn't good Um, I like the characters okay. I certainly like Penny Marshall, and I'm really glad she went on to do something much better. Which I is like Lenny. She, I liked Lenny and Squiggy. Yeah, but the problem was, is the '70s started. That was where that whole catchphrase thing really just dug its heels in and says, "I'm not going anywhere." Yeah. And you would wait for the characters to show up to say their line, yeah. and then the audience would clap and like, okay. Um, and of course, you know, they, they kind of do that here a little bit, but they don't wait for the audience because there isn't one. But yeah, like, that's what I said when I, you know, I was mentioning that the Guns N' Roses song would have stood out like that would have made this movie topical for the 90s. And it wasn't. It was all about 70s stuff because it was the stuff that Mike Myers, I'm guessing, enjoyed when he was young. Probably. But, There's a little 60s stuff, too. You know, some of the music, when they're at that club, The Gasworks, which is supposed mm-hmm. to be a heavy metal club. Uh, the music, I mean, Crucial Taunt is covering Jimi Hendrix. Right. That's, well, that ain't, that's not metal. It's genius, I, but it's not metal. Well, and they also cover, uh, they use um, Foxy Lady later on when sure. Garth is having a, a moment. Um, that's right, with his dream woman played by Donna Dixon. Who, I was to happy me, that was. Yeah, she's known for two things mainly, you know, bosom buddies. Right. She was sunny. And being Mrs. Dan Aykroyd. Oh, well, Dan... Yeah, okay. <clears throat> but uh, rhymes with brophy. Um, oh, no, they've been married since 1983. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, that's they're still nice. together. Well, I take it back. Rhymes yeah. with ice guy. <laughs> I that, guess. I don't good know. save. Good save. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing about me that isn't smooth. Um, yeah, so this this film, the humor is so based on other things. In a lot of cases, that you know, I can't blame them for the whole cable access show because, to be fair, nobody thought cable was going anywhere, 
And if you want to be kind, you could say that that whole thing is kind of a precursor to YouTube, that whole Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Which, if people don't know, so Andy Warhol was an artist mostly known in the 60s through the 80s. Soup cans! Soup cans. His <laughs> One of his most famous quotes was that, in the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes. And... Mm. It started coming true uh, earlier, but I don't think it's any more true than it is now. Like, yeah. you know, anybody can have their own show. Uh, uh, um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, of course. Why do you is. keep doing this? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and of course, there is famous. The, the, we haven't done the famous part. We've done the 15 minutes, but we haven't done the famous <laughs> part. That is we true. Should, we should see about that. Yeah. But yeah. yeah so like the 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 Wayne and Garth show there, Wayne's World thing, uh, is not entirely unlike what eventually would become YouTube. Although I don't think this is being prescient at all. I think it's just sort of a way you could say, well, that part's not totally dated. Well, besides. Um, the whole cable, as you say, it was starting up, but it it started in the eighties. The whole cable, mm. the local axis, when they were just trying to fill time, right? And it was a thing. It still is a thing. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, Max, that's one of my questions. I have some talking points. And have you had any experience with local cable access? No. Moving on. Oh. <laughs> Well, I have. If you don't want to, I will. Oh, all right. Yes. So, okay. I've done some news reading for a local cable access called Talking News, which basically involves me and a couple of other people literally reading stories out of the newspaper to a background of a camera shot out the window with text over it for half an hour. <laughs> yes. That's it. We read, And this is not like reading the New York Times. This is reading a local churned out free newspaper articles it's basically news reading for people who uh have visual problems and don't know have a radio mm. yeah well i actually haven't performed mm. in cable local access but it used to be and i don't know if it's still a thing and of course right now i'm sure that the cable companies are like whatever you want we really don't care because nobody watches <laughs> them um was that every cable local cable state or local cable provider had to provide a certain amount of time to anybody in the local community that wanted to do a show. I think that's still true. And uh, literally all it required was going down to your local cable <laughs> office, if you could find it, uh, and saying, I want to do a show, signing some forms, and then that's it. Whatever yeah. equipment was in the studio was all you got. If you want anything else, you had to bring it yourself. Yeah, they didn't teach you. They just said, here's a nope. studio. You got an hour. Yeah, and we'll put you on Sunday nights at 3 a.m. Um, you want to sit there I, and do a puppet show? You can do a puppet show. Well, and we're going to get to that in a second. But I went because I wanted to learn video editing. I had shot a film on VHS, and I wanted to use their video editing equipment. Well, to do that, you actually had to take classes. So I took, I don't know, a six-week class in video editing so I could edit my video, which I still wasn't able to do. Um, and, boy, you thought the shows were dull. <laughs> <laughs> But oh, um, there okay, actually so. is at least one example I can think of where a cable local access show um, actually turned into something a little bigger. Can you can you think of that example? I cannot. Really? Not off the top of my head. What is it? It's one of our favorite shows. Oh, of course, Mystery Science Theater. But that wasn't cable. That was on a local broadcast network. It was on a UHF channel. It was on uh, KTMA, U Channel 23... UHF in uh, Minneapolis. Now, see, that one's actually, in a way, worse because people actually watched UHF. 
Well, like, we didn't have a lot know. of choice. I, at that point, I didn't have cable. I had my little four-inch black and white portable that I watched. Uh, that I just barely got Channel Twenty Three on. That's how I found Mystery Science Theater. Because like cable access, you actually have to go to that channel, which yeah. usually you don't know what it is. Um, but UHF is a choice of one of five channels you probably got. So five. Oh, we used to dream <laughs> of having five. Anyway, way off topic. But yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I mean, I, they weren't cable access, but the same idea, right? Yeah. Local time show turns into something huge. So, so yeah, that was so that was a thing. And I gotta say, some of the humor in this is not as you know, time-based or, as let's face it, based on catchphrases and stuff from the sketch. Although, the, that's what she said. That's very 90s. Yeah. And, the, you know, swing, monkeys might fly out of my butt. A lot of those are just catchphrases from the sketches. Right. Some of it, I still find the scene where Wayne and Cassandra are talking, they're speaking in Cantonese, which Wayne learned the day before. Mm-hmm. And, the, and they stop talking and the subtitles keep going. Yeah. And I like the fact that he's supposed to be this complete beginner, but he's trying to discuss Kierkegaardian philosophy, and <laughs> yeah. that's that's kind of funny. There are bits that are funny in this. Yeah, there are. I actually, I mean, this has become a cliche, although it wasn't at the time. Um, talking about bringing making stuff popular again with Queen, but the Scooby Doo ending, I yeah. still laughed at that, and yeah. that was not a thing. It was refer- again referencing something that was. Barely in the 60s. Um, but at that point, I would say Scooby-Doo was not on anybody's tongue. It was not but a it, thing. But Scooby-Doo has never been gone. There's always no. Been, there has always been some incarnation of it from the 60s all the way to today. That that I show know. has incredible persistence for some reason. Uh, yeah, but it's like it still brought it back to public, you know, uh, attention, if you uh-huh. will. Um, I kind of wonder if other things weren't brought back. I mean, Scooby-Doo, Queen, um, Mission Impossible, a show that had pretty much been forgotten and then three years later would have a brand new resurgence. A lot of people have used that music, though. The music was way more iconic than the show ever was. Yeah, but then they actually do a bit with characters doing a Mission Impossible as opposed to just playing the music. Kind Um, of, yeah. Yeah, but one of the problems with this film isn't that the humor isn't funny, it's that it was funny at the time, and everybody has quoted it so yeah. much that it's, be- it's, it, it's become a bit of a cliche, as you say. Yeah, I mean, I, one of my notes too was a movie, a movie you want to quote, but you don't really want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, things, little things like when they're doing the different settings. It's like, oh, here we are in Texas, partner. Then, or you could go to Delaware. Yeah. Hi, I'm in Delaware. <laughs> That's real. That cracks me up still. Yeah. But, you know, the, you know, right, like monkeys, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, the whole, sh- like you said, schwing, all that stuff, unfortunately, became so much part of the vernacular that it kind of, uh, another note I had was the movie actually, the, the one of the phrases they used, the blah, 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 not, mm-hmm. not only has not aged well, but I honestly think that in the middle of the film, it jumps its own shark. Like, <laughs> we're actually tired of it like three three quarters of the way through the film um i people still do it but those are like oh you're not in any way or never have been cool have you <laughs> no i mean that's actually part of one of the jokes in the movie borat when someone is trying to explain american humor to him and they use that as an example and they do it in the driest most humorless way possible and he goes on through the movie trying to use it and using it badly every time mm. 
Um, on the plus side, I'd like to talk a little bit about the casting really quickly. I don't Earth. like Rob Lowe, but he does really well in this. <laughs> he, he plays a great jerk. He's really good at it. And yeah. yes, he also plays that kind of guy you just want to punch because he's just too damn good looking. Yeah, but he's good looking in a very smarmy way. So they, they he, play that up here. He is, Rob Lowe is does not always look that way, but they do. They slick back his hair. They make yeah. him very much the '90s yuppie, yeah. uh, success obsessed people we may have met at times in our lives. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, but but uh, the other standout for me, and I, you know, now I sort of understand that thing you had in the trivia about Mike Myers not wanting to share the spotlight is Dana Carvey. I honestly think Dana Carvey's better than Mike Myers is. I, I think he is a honestly Garth I think is a more interesting character. One of the scenes I hadn't I didn't remember this. But there's a sequence where Benjamin you know, Droblo is talking to Garth and trying to get him on board. You know, and Garth is playing with these like high-tech toys. And the vibe the two of them have is fascinating. You know, that's when you, we you know, I'd like to talk about some, you know, differences in the show. We fear change. <laughs> and the way they're looking at each other like they're from two different planets, and yet on some level, you get the feeling... I just... I don't know where this comes from. I got the feeling Benjamin understood Garth better than he understood Wayne. I don't think we understand Wayne. Yeah. Wayne right? is an so, odd character. Garth is a nerd. He is yeah. He is a geek. He is a nerd. What is Wayne? Is he's he a like, nerd? Well... That's the thing. He's not really a cool kid, or at least we don't feel he's a cool kid, but he's is one in the movie. He plays and, one and, on TV, yes. Yeah, basically. And then we get to that scene, the gratuitous yeah. sex scene, which, oh, yeah. quite honestly, whenever those two are together, I just feel moist. <laughs> and not yeah, in I a good way. I have to say, that whole sequence is really uncomfortable, because yeah. I'm sorry, they don't have chemistry. no. Which is, and you know, first off, I will say Tia Carrera is a friggin' goddess. She is just stunning. I yes. always feel, I feel kind of bad for her. I've heard her talk about this. She's like, yeah, I've played, let's see, Chinese, Japanese, Korean. I'm always supposed to be talking about honor and how I have disgraced my family. And, you know, <laughs> she's Hawaiian. <laughs> you know? Well, she should uh. do a movie with The Rock, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the two of them together not only don't have chemistry, but whenever, like, they're kissing and stuff, I just, it's just You don't, not, it's... It's gross. And, this, like, that scene where he's on top of her at the very end before they cut uh, away, oh, my God, thank you for cutting away. I it's did like, not need to see Mike Myers in his tidy whities I just No, don't. and he seems to like to do that, because he'll do it again mm, in, yep. uh, in the Austin oh, Powers films. Yes, he will. Um, but it's, like, okay... Um, but also, let's let's bring this card out because we've done this before. Um, I want to say that this movie is not in any way, shape, or form misogynistic. Wouldn't you agree, Max? <laughs> oh dear. Well, because all of the women are purely, fully realized characters. They're oh, yeah. all very, very interesting, and none of them depth. are used as sex symbols. Nope, no, not once. No, not one. Oh yeah. lord, no. That's very. That is very true. I, I think there's a little self-awareness of this. The fact that, like, Donna Dixon's character doesn't have a name. She's literally called Dream Woman. Well, is I that self-awareness? Well, th also, this is a woman director. I'd like to think she tried to throw some of that in. But, no, it's true. The women... I mean, Cassandra's the closest one to having a story or a personality, and they go nowhere with it. Stacy, again... I... It, Wayne's ex-girlfriend, this... 
I'm sorry, this feeds into something I want to talk about, how this is basically a nerd fantasy, this movie. <laughs> really? His well, my, ex- actually, my, my line was, it's a movie by white guys for white guys, but Not please, go ahead. Not just white guys, it's for yeah. white nerds. It's yeah. like the the nerd triumphant movie, which started like with things Revenge of the Nerds, and I, we saw, we'll see 10 years later in Napoleon Dynamite, mm-hmm. which is better done because as the nerd there is way more, you're more uncomfortable with Napoleon Dynamite because he <laughs> is so socially awkward. Him or his brother? I can't remember uh, who's worse. <laughs> it's, it's hard to tell. But uh, Mike got his ex-girlfriend Stacy was played by Laura Flynn Boyle, who it was gorgeous then, is gorgeous now, and is again so far out of his league. Yeah. And and he ends and the, the women he ends the woman he ends up with and you know Garth's dream woman for heaven's sake. And good lord! In the sequel, Garth actually has a sort of love story with Kim Basinger. <laughs> Well, apparently yeah. Donna Dixon was busy. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> and and yeah, wasn't. this thing is, it is a fantasy. It's, oh, yeah. It's a, and it's a nerd fantasy. It's the idea that you can be, you know, you can live in your parents' basement. You can have a series of, as, as Wayne calls them, Joe Jobs. But yeah. you will still become famous and rich and beautiful women will be all over you. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> because it hadn't become an overused thing at this point... I don't really mind that because I'm quite honestly tired of seeing the jocks win and yeah. the big good-looking guy. So that part initially at the time when it came out doesn't bother me. Now, of course, it's a trope. Yeah. Um, but it's but also just is- not fair to the women characters because it's all about, hey, how about a woman that is actually interesting and quite honestly, I mean, she's not only out of his league because she's beautiful and, you know, uh, Wayne isn't, but she's a lot smarter and more talented. She's actually an incredibly talented musician, not just the character, but the actor is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she's also very, she's very self-possessed. She's very sure of herself. She's tough. She's strong. She can beat people up if she has to. She is, and you get the feeling she is totally not taken in by Benjamin at all. No. And there's that scene where Wayne gets jealous and quite honestly, I think it's the worst scene in the film. When he shows up, he goes back to Milwaukee because yeah. she lives in Milwaukee for reasons unknown. And he basically accuses her of her sleeping with Benjamin. And it's a really weird scene because it's not funny. And you suddenly don't like Wayne. I mean, if very, you liked him. It's very hard to sympathize. And it's not just like showing a flaw. It's He really is genuinely a jerk in this scene. Yeah. And later when she takes him back, it's like, I think you're better off on your own. I mean, we don't know why you chose him in the first place. Yeah. Oh, he spoke Cantonese. Okay, that's mm. nice. And it's funny. But, I, yeah, chemistry? No. Um, it's just, I, I, I'm sure there are some out there. But it would be nice to see a movie about a strong, talented, attractive female character. And to see who she would actually choose. Like, what is she interested in? I don't know. We never see it. It's always, oh, the nerd, he's so nice, or or, or, or it's the jock, he's so handsome, or whatever. I'd like to see it, because I don't know. I, have, mm. I, I can't think of a single example off the top of my head where I believed that the talented, um, amazing, attractive female lead actually chose somebody that I think she would choose. <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> I'm there, I think there are some out there. I can't think of any off the top of my head. But uh, hey, viewers, if uh, uh, listeners, if you guys do, uh, let us know. Yeah, because uh, mm. you know, I, I knew this film was directed by a woman because I saw the credits, and yet I don't feel it anywhere in the movie. 
you can tell this movie is very much, well, he may not have been directing it. This is very much uh, Mike Myers' brainchild. It's very much his thing. It's an expansion of an of a character that he created and he owned. So, yeah. How old I don't would know. you say Wayne is supposed to be? Wayne oh, and Garth. Like, Post like, high I, school. I always figured they're just over 18 is as far as I got. But it's like, I, I mean, part of the problem, of course, is that the actors are, yeah, I'm going to say, well into their 30s at this yeah, point. And Dana Carvey may already so. be in his 40s. I don't know. I don't think he was that old. But uh, yeah, definitely in their 30s. They don't, I think we're supposed to think they're early 20s, but I don't, you know, that doesn't come really across except for the speech patterns and the clothing because they don't, they don't look it and they don't move like it. No, it's almost, I mean, you can't get past the fact that it's older guys playing younger guys that look like older guys playing younger guys. And quite honestly, I was paying more attention to his friends because some of them are kind of cute. <laughs> ah. oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Yes, I mean, they're the three guys in the car during the uh, during the Bohemian Rhapsody sequence. There's Phil, who the one who's always get, well, looks like he's about to throw up. And uh, yeah. who are the other two? Uh, I don't care, but there's also the band <laughs> members for Tia Carrera, and it's like, and then there's other guys at the club, and it's like I'm not paying attention to Wayne. It, it's just, it's just an odd thing. Those two guys, I, I just coming back to, yeah, their names by the way are Alan and Neil. The only reason oh. we know this is it's in the credits. Mm. Their names are never spoken. No. We don't know who they are. The only people in Wayne's. Wayne and Garth's group that we know are Phil and Terry, the one who keeps telling everyone, I love you. Yeah. That's his whole character. And right. yeah, we don't know any of the guys in Cassandra's band. No. But then there's that weird joke about, and I learned that two men can have platonic love. In a, it's like, okay, uh, that's interesting. It's a, it's a strange I, thing to throw in, but sure. So um, one of the other things you mentioned uh, earlier on in the um, trivia was the breaking of the fourth wall. They waste no time. <laughs> oh no, that starts right off. I mean, and you, that again—that's a cat. That's a holdover from the show. The whole show—they're talking to the camera. Do, now, well, to be fair, the, we're supposed to be watching the show. Yeah. So, in this movie, do you think the breaking the fourth wall thing actually works? I think a lot of the time it does. I think they overdo it a bit. I, I sometimes it gets kind of annoying. I do kind of like the fact, like, when Ed O'Neill starts talking to the camera, that Wayne comes over and says, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> Only Garth and I can talk to the camera. Or at, or when Wayne is at his low point and the camera loses interest in him and starts to leave. Yeah. Well, I also <laughs> I, like it when Garth is like, ah, come over here, come over here. <laughs> um, but it's, I, I don't, it's a, it's a weird thing. It's funny, but I honestly don't know who they're talking to. It's just. It's it's just weird. It's one of those things you literally cannot question because it can't make sense, I guess. Because yeah, as soon I, as I you realize it's talking to the audience, well, the audience is here to watch a movie starring Mike Meyer, Myers and Dana Carvey. So it's just, I don't know, it's weird. I think they play with it pretty well. I think sometimes it doesn't work. I think they go a little nuts with it at the end because at that point, you know, with the, with the you know, let's do, let's do the mega happy ending. Right. Then at the end, when he looks looks at it, says, "Isn't it great how we're all better people?" And he does that old "ah, oh, fished in, fished in." Yeah. Where in effect, suddenly he's mocking the audience. Mm -hmm. and, well, and of course, then if you wait through the credits, yes, they're still sitting there, and you know. So, what do you think they're going to do? Oh, I think they're probably just going to fade to black. Well, they wouldn't do that. And of course, you know, can't they, believe they, do. they did that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again, uh, some of it is funny. Some of it is a, a lot of it. It's also hard to judge now because. 
when that ha- when that movie happened, it wasn't as big a thing breaking the fourth wall. Not as co- not it wasn't as hitting you over the head with it as it is in this movie. You had characters who would talk to the camera. Hell, any Woody Allen movie. But uh, this, as I say, they didn't. They don't just break the fourth wall. They completely demolish it and grind it down into playground sand. Yeah, and some of it's fun, and some of it I don't know. Yeah, that's the reason I brought it up because I think it's one of those things that, if used properly can be a really good gimmick although it's always going to be a gimmick but here it's just i was sort of like i i do i have a say in how this movie goes i mean are you asking my opinion i don't know (laughs) uh would it matter because it's film so you can't change anything but i don't know I, I, i i i'm not sure i'm not sure it's not that it wasn't funny in times i just wasn't sure if it made sense to do it honestly for me when I saw it the first time, it really worked. I thought this movie yeah. was hilarious. Oh, I yeah. don't think that part has aged well. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's me. Maybe I just don't like it as much. But now, maybe it's because it's so pro- prevalent. So many play- people do it. Mm. It's just, it's not that funny because it's not unusual anymore. It's become kind of a norm. Well, and what happens when you've got a film like, oh, this one, who has so, or which has so many lines and so many techniques that other people themselves reference and quote and make fun of that the film kind of can't exist inside that bubble of how it was originally released like you can't take this film out of the fact that people have been quoting this and making fun of the same things they've been making fun of and queen and mission impossible and scooby-doo without realizing that it's been going on for the last like we've all been doing this you can't see it the way it was originally shown you know what i mean fresh yeah yeah i don't think this movie ages well i think it's fun for well people like us who who use it as nostalgia and remember how you know i like it because it reminds me of how i felt when i first saw it it reminds me of a time at the time in the 90s when I enjoyed watching Saturday Night Live and which you know I just as background I'd like to point out I've watched Saturday Night Live since it came out since it started and I never stopped I still try nowadays why do you admit that <laughs> we're trying to get Max because help if you would I'm like trying, to help Max <laughs> you understand admitting you have a problem is the first step in getting help <laughs> yes I wish Saturday Night Live would take your advice <laughs> So uh, we, yeah. we seem to have uh, kind of um, slipperily yeah. segued into the final part. I don't know how I'm going to edit think, that yeah. in, but whatever. No idea. The Roundup. So, Max, it was yeah. your choice. Yeah. How, when was the last time you saw it? Boy, it's got to be 10, 15 years. Because you probably have seen it, quote unquote, the way everyone sees it. You, It's been on in the background, you watch 20 minutes, and then you go finish washing the dishes, right? Yeah, pretty much. Or at times I would actually, you know, show it in a movie marathon. I think we did that once. Uh, so what, what do you yeah. think? Hmm? What do you think? It's still fun for me, but I have to say, I, I think this was a good choice for a, a series about the 90s because this movie is very 90s, and it is one of, I mean, as you said, it spawned a lot of catchphrases, a lot of humor for the era. It's not just a reflection of it. It was a source. So I think it was a significant movie. I don't think it holds up that well. And I really don't know. I'd be really curious how like somebody, a Gen Z person or even a millennial, would would think of this. You know, someone who did not grow up with it, who didn't see the original 
show who didn't didn't doesn't know the '90s as well. I, I wonder. I, I don't know how well it ages. I don't think it ages very well. I still get a kick out of some of it, but some of it also just kind of makes me sad. Huh. What about you? I pretty much agree. Um, I think the pacing is kind of off. There is long periods of not funny. Eh. And in a, in a comedy, you at least want things to be moving quickly if they're mm-hmm. not making you laugh. And there are big chunks of time where it's doing neither. Um, I don't like the way they treat women in the film. Uh, we also didn't mention, but you know, Tia Carrera is the only person of color uh, within sight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, around Chicago, that's kind of unusual. Even if it is a unlike, suburb. Yeah. Um, plus it's not like it's a, uh, documentary. It's not like, oh, well, no. you know, that, these people weren't there then. Like, yeah. There's yeah. plenty of, you could have black people in this. It'd be fine. Yeah. Um, I honestly think a lot of people, a lot of younger folks would sit there staring. Like, I don't think they'd get it. And I don't think they'd think it was funny. Um, on the one hand, it made a big ton of cash. Yeah. It just, it's the movie like is set in its time. It grabs its moment in time and it stays there. It never leaves it. There's nothing universally funny about this film. Maybe that's one of the reasons that I had trouble with it this time around, is it was funny for its moment. And like I said, you can't take it out of that bubble, because once you do, it's sort of like... (laughs) I can see that. It's very much a creation of its time for its time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was badly made, specifically. I don't think it was particularly well-directed. Um, again, the, the pacing was a little bit of a problem. Apparently, Mr. Myers was, was an issue. I yeah. totally dis- disagree with him not wanting to share with Dana Carvey, uh, except for the part that I think Dana Carvey's actually better than he is. <laughs> um, just even like playing the character, just I, I find him... I laughed more at Garth than I did at Wayne. I don't know if I ever laughed at Wayne, but Garth, I, there were times when I thought he was actually pretty funny. Um, so yeah, you know, if, if you loved it, I'd go back for nostalgia's sake. That's what it was made for. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but if you're if you're new or younger, I don't think you're going to miss anything by giving this one a pass. Yeah, you might see because there has it has influenced other things. I mean, hell, but that's it, the problem is if you've yeah. seen any of the influence, you've already seen the joke. Ah, true, true, and it's a strange thing because Mike Myers was in you know two of the two incredibly successful franchises of mm-hmm. Austin Powers and Shrek, hmm. even though he is apparently not the easiest person to work with. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's. This was no love guru. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Yes, or So I Married an Axe Murderer. I, I've heard people who like that film, but yeah, I haven't I'm, heard anybody who likes Love Guru. No. It was really pretty awful. I never saw it, but... But we're not going to watch that next no. week. No, we aren't. What are we going to watch next week as we continue our sojourn through the 90s? Yeah, so fake folks may have noticed a pattern, although I don't know if you can notice much of a pattern with um, two films. <laughs> but <clears throat> uh, So we're doing the 90s, um, mm-hmm. and we're looking back and stuff. Max is going for more of the bigger budget films. Yep. And I'm aiming for the films that, uh, let's see, what's the best way to describe this? People probably haven't seen. <laughs> yeah. The obscure films, the indie films. Yeah, and there was a lot of, as it turns out, I didn't. it didn't occur to me, but when I went looking back, there was a lot of independent um, auteur films in the 90s is actually a a sort of people think of it as a renaissance for that kind of thing and a film i saw in the 90s and i've not seen since and i don't know how well it's going to age is uh being john malkovich Uh. where i'm hoping we are going to get lines like do not let them reach the varden or (laughs) do not prolong my suffering or if we're really like (laughs) 
or if we're really lucky, I'm in pain without my stone. <laughs> or I distinctly asked for marinara on the side. <laughs> yeah, so which Malkovich will we get? Will we get the angry Olive Garden customer? Or- <laughs> I think we also or, get or John Cusack this? in this, too, don't we? John Cusack, in one of the oddest roles he's ever played. It's a film called Being John Malkovich. And yeah. quite honestly, uh, although we'll go over this next week, that's kind of what it's about. <laughs> not himself, but what if other people can be John Malkovich? No, I'm not kidding. Yeah, so yeah. next week, tune in for The Varden and <laughs> My Stone and The Pain. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench.